a statistic that always blows my mind is that we're losing 30 soccer fields per minute worth of topsoil. At these rates of degradation, we'll be out of topsoil in 55 years. Remote sensing holds a lot of promise um, in terms of being able to scale the impacts of um, agricultural practices on soils and, and soil health, helping us to kind of gain a deeper understanding of the interplay between human managed ecosystems and what's happening in the soil. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumampos, and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science, their careers, and their passions. Get your plates ready because today, food security, intersectionality, and a little music is on the menu. Support for Down to Earth comes from the Inspire, Develop, Empower, Advance, or IDEA Committee of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. The IDEA Committee is devoted to empowering engineers and scientists from diverse backgrounds to follow a career in geoscience and remote sensing. One way they do this is by pairing established and emerging geoscientists through their Women Mentoring Women program. In this year-long mentorship, careers blossom and friendships are born across generations, disciplines, and geographies. To learn more and become a member, visit grss-ieee.org community idea. Before we dive in, a quick content warning for our listeners. Today's episode includes mentions of depression and postpartum anxiety. Our guest shares some of her experiences in these areas while on her journey in geoscience. Please continue with care. I love to feed people. When people come to my house and come over, I always like to cook a really elaborate meal. Um, I briefly considered going to culinary school instead of college. You know, I just I always have been really into food, I guess. This is Dr. Alyssa Whitcraft. Today, She's a deputy director and program manager for NASA Harvest. She's also an associate research professor in the Department of Geographical Sciences at University of Maryland. And since 2015, she has served as program scientist at the G20's Group on Earth Observations Global Agricultural Monitoring Secretariat. But as she mentioned, a career in remote sensing wasn't her initial plan. I started at UCLA as a psychobiology major, and I think I was like an applied math minor. I really wanted to be a doctor. When I started university, um, coincided with the first major mental health issue of my life. I had really severe depression. I had always been this like outstanding student, but I think I just really reassessed my life all of a sudden. And I was terrified of committing eight or 10 years to like medical school and residency. And I ended up kind of just taking a step back. And I'm like a testament to the liberal arts education, general education requirements that come out of those big universities, because I was just going to take a general education requirement class. And there was a professor, Tom Gillespie, who is really highly recommended at UCLA. And I took one of his GE classes. And uh, I mean, it just opened up like a whole new world to me. It was fascinating. And at the same time, the professor and I became really close. Um, I think he recognized that I was struggling. I think he just saw right away in me that I had potential or that I was really interested in what we were doing, but I was like really lost. The experience of leaving the medical sciences and meeting Professor Gillespie marked a major turning point in Alyssa's life and ultimately led her to combine her first love food with a career in remote sensing. So you met Professor Gillespie. 
and you really loved the first geography class you took. But what led you to use remote sensing to study agriculture? My first project that I did in one of his classes was comparing the vineyards from which we source grapes, a certain varietal, Pinot Noir, in, in um, San Inez, Santa Barbara County, with those that are in, you know, in Burgundy in France, which is like where it came from. And I think I just realized like agriculture is so dynamic, both in space and in time. I mean, Mm -hmm. fields in China could not look more different than fields in Iowa, could not look more different than fields in Peru, Mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. You know, they're just, there's so much diversity in the way the the fields are arranged and how people cultivate. Um, So it's just like a, a really complex and beautiful problem. (laughs) <laughs> and so for me, like having this little bit of human curiosity, social science, international development background, but then really being into remote sensing as a tool, it felt like such a natural path for me to take. What led you from agricultural monitoring to specifically focus on food security? Um, social justice and climate justice are entwined. They're not distinct topics that can be tackled or solved separately. So from a food security perspective, We still every year have huge amounts of people who are not getting enough nutrition. We're absolutely able to produce enough food for everybody. The question is just, can we do it ecologically and do it safely? And I think the answer is yes, but there's, you know, the complex interplay between the way people manage the land, um, both in reaction to change in climate and then also the way it it can exacerbate or mitigate Mm -hmm. the change in climate. Um, and those are, I think that's an incredibly important piece of the puzzle for us to quantitatively be able to describe, um, to develop sort of policies and recommendations for land cultivation that minimize uh, the impact of agriculture on the climate system mm-hmm. and on biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And um, the work that we do can make immediate impacts in people's lives in terms of safe, like food security response kind of stuff that we do. But it also has the possibility to make sort of longer term impacts in in informing the sort of sound policy that um, can have impacts on land for generations to come. Mm -hmm. Could you give us an example of your work? So one of the things that NASA Harvest is working on in the sustainability space is um, we're working on launching a new sustainable and regenerative agriculture initiative, which we're calling Sarah, Sarah Initiative. And um, the objective is really to improve the metrics of detecting land use practices that we know to be good for soil um, as sort of a, a qualitative assessment um, and increasing our ability to relate those to quantitative metrics um, like increased soil, organic matter, um, decreased runoff, decreased erosion, things like that, um, so that we can set up the evidence base that will both support farmers in adopting more regenerative practices, um, but also underpin some of the financial instruments that are emerging right now. It's kind of the wild west and people are saying like, oh, well, we want to monetize carbon and we want to monetize this stuff, but there isn't necessarily like the standards or the agreed upon definitions or even like the acknowledgement that a practice that worked in level in, like place A on crop A is going to work in place B on crop B. Um, so we see remote sensing having a lot of potential there for scaling. Um, and that's one of the things NASA Harvest is, is working on um, moving forward. Mm-hmm. So you wear a lot of hats. And you know, one of the themes that, that comes out throughout your work is intersectionality. 
What do you mean when you say you complete your work through a lens of intersectionality? And why is this a focus important to you? Well, I'll say I try. Um, so intersectionality theory was created by Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, she's a law professor at UCLA and I think also Columbia. And she's one of the co-founders of the African-American um, Policy Forum, among a lot of other hats that she wears as well. Intersectionality is basically, we have a lot of different identities that we operate in. For example, um, I am a cisgendered white woman, but you know I also have a learning disability um, and you know struggle with mental health. There's a, you know other markers of identity that come together, and some of them confer benefits, and some of them confer disadvantages. But ultimately, like my whole reality is informed by my personal lived experience, which is an outcome of you know who I am, where I grew up. And the societal messaging around me of like what it means to be each of those things. I'm in physical science. I'm not in social science, but there is a social component to what I'm doing because we're talking about a human natural system, agriculture. And so understanding why people make the land use decisions that they make, it, it's going to vary drastically in each individual context um, based on each individual situation that's brought to them. And I feel like it's really difficult to understand what's going on unless you look at the intersection of all of like the, their identities, of the policies that exist, of the environment that they're operating in, in the resources that they have available to them, in the markets that they're delivering to. That's, that's sort of how I try to, in my work, incorporate Dr. Crenshaw's theory. So you said about the social impact. Do you feel intersectionality helps us better interpret remote sensing data and make better decisions? I think it helps me. I think it helps me to acknowledge this this theory. This is much more entrenched in social science than it is in physical science. Um, and so I hope I'm doing some level of justice to it. But essentially, I learned a lot through the social science background that I did have. Um, and I've you know, I've spent as much of the last 10 years learning as I have unlearning a lot of the sort of unconscious biases that are very much entrenched in the society in which I was raised. And so, yeah, I mean, for me, understanding the ways in which these different things come together to create meaning or create an experience on the whole is invaluable way for me to understand how to operate and how to be like a productive member of society. Coming up, we discuss how intersectionality is applied in the field of remote sensing. We also learn how Alyssa successfully fought for a small change that has had big implications at the University of Maryland. And yes, as mentioned in the intro of today's episode, there will be music. All this right after the break. Worldwide, women remain underrepresented in the STEM workforce. That's why the IDEA Committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society has developed a highly organized and incredibly rewarding mentorship program for women. Through this year-long program, mentors support mentees in setting goals, problem-solving challenges, and celebrating successes. I think it's very rewarding to know that you have positive impact on a young woman's career in science. 
more importantly, you're developing also friendship between the two of you. So it's highly rewarding, really. Consider offering your expertise as a mentor or bringing your enthusiasm and questions as a mentee. Visit grss-ieee.org slash community slash idea to sign up. Welcome back. Today, we've been speaking with Dr. Alyssa Whitcraft, Deputy Director and Program Manager for NASA Harvest, Associate Research Professor at University of Maryland, and Program Scientist at the G20's Group on Earth Observations Global Agricultural Monitoring Secretariat. The conversation has touched on Alyssa's journey from hopeful chef to potential medical doctor and finally to remote sensing scientist with a focus on food security. But as Alyssa briefly shared, the journey wasn't at all easy. Along the way, Alyssa has struggled through mental health challenges and has also engaged in an ongoing practice of unlearning and relearning concepts of privilege through a lens of intersectionality. As a reminder, intersectionality is a theoretical framework developed by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw that is used to understand how aspects of a person's social and political identities lead to different experiences of privilege and discrimination. Overall, Alyssa's challenges and learnings have strengthened her resolve to carve better paths for her fellow scientists coming up the ranks. Through her work, she emphasizes the importance of representation in developing solutions to institutional racism and other discrimination, since, as she notes, excluding impacted groups can increase rather than reduce harm. Do you think intersectionality needs to be brought into the hard sciences, into the physical sciences? I think that that's probably a tall order um, for, to bring it in as an analytical tool. But I do think, I mean, the fact that in remote sensing and GIS, you know, we do have a real lack of um, representation from particularly Black, Indigenous, and Latinx communities. So I think like what intersectionality was designed to investigate and look at, which is, you know, how identities come together and they can, you know, be utilized to benefit or to oppress different people is an important thing to look at when you're trying to improve our field. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely on point. So what are the ways that you have been working to improve the field for others? I mean, that's a really important question because there's acknowledging the problem and then there's actually being able to do something about it. The successes and the impacts I've had are like, you know, principally with identities that I personally occupy. And so I would say that a lot of the work that I have done is more about enhancing representation of women in STEM and women identified people. When I had my son, I became sort of acutely aware of how much money it costs to have a child <laughs> and how much of that, the labor involved in caring for a child, the mental load often disproportionately falls upon the, you know, woman identified part of the couple where they're, you know, I'm speaking about a heteronormative situation in this context. Anyway, I spent like $7,000 in the first year bringing him or caretakers with me to like be able to go do my job. And I thought like, what's the alternative? I just don't go to these meetings or I sacrifice this bond and this relationship with my very young infant. And I just was like, those are not good choices. Those are not good options. <laughs> so um, I worked with the university and I used the power of the chair of the department, Chris Justice, to basically advocate for 
um, the coverage of all dependent care. So not just infants, not just for mothers who are breastfeeding, anybody who is responsible for the caregiving of another human being for whom their absence due to work travel presents a hardship. And so now there's like a grant, a small grant pool for um, offsetting anything kind of associated, whether you leave the child or the the parent or the ill family member at home and you have to pay for in-home care while you're away or whether you need to rent, buy an extra flight for somebody who's going to come and help care for your child, whatever it is, that's now a pool of money that's available. And then I am very much in the position of still listening and learning um, and trying to lend the platform and the power that I have to the advancement of other underrepresented groups. There are so many people who have so much rich experience in this space and also who have scholarship in this space and throwing the weight that you have behind them, um, I think is a often a better way for us to operate as allies than trying to, you know, promote solutions that make sense to us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a lesson for me as well. Part of my like unlearning process is I'm like, I'm so oriented toward fixing and doing as a person. And that's my personality. Um, Mm. And so I've had to certainly learn to just like, listen and be like, how can I help? Mm -hmm. Or say, if I help in this way, is that useful? You know, Mm -hmm. just do the best that, that I can. I totally agree with you. And what you said about funding for childcare, being a mom is not easy. And it's so important that you've raised that issue to your university, to your department. I think that's something that needs to be extended to all universities and all fields. <laughs> I just saw this thing the other day about like how many acknowledgements there were in, you know, different papers. Like, thank you to my wife who typed this whole thing for me, you know, <laughs> and it's just like, there's so much of this labor, but there's no like, thank you for, to my wife for like raising my children and managing the house. So that labor was just, it's invisible and it's yeah. just assumed. I have a full blown second shift and it's not just like, it's not like I sit down at work for eight hours and can only work. Like there's a thousand things that come up during the day, especially in COVID times that are related to maintaining the health of my family unit. And like, you know, where you have students who are having struggles, like overwhelmingly it's female faculty who uh, do the caregiving and emotional maintenance of those IVs, uh, you know, advisees and those students. Um, and yet those are, they're just not acknowledged. Yeah, exactly. I saw this comic floating around social media. It's uh-huh. a racetrack. And in the men's lane, there's nothing. But in the women's lane, there's barriers such as clothes to wash, food to cook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are definitely still barriers for women. But the conversations about these barriers are opening up. And we're getting to see how women are currently juggling things. Speaking of juggling, you wear so many hats and you're a mom. So how do you do it all? especially during coronavirus times. Yeah, I mean, okay, I'll just say like, you know, my husband and I had uh, a shared calendar where we would block off periods of time that was just like, this is my interrupted working time, this is your uninterrupted working time. And both of us, you know, work in Europe a lot. So we had to switch off mornings. So like people say, can you meet this morning? I'd say, sorry, no, that's not my morning. Or like, yes, I can meet, but my son's going to be in the background. And if he needs something, like I'm going to attend to his needs kind of thing childcare is essential. Like if the, I hope that every single human being, even those who are not responsible for childcare have picked on up on that in this crisis, that um, economy shut down without childcare because 
you can't leave kids on their own. Yeah. They'll eat poison and stab themselves <laughs> and like do God knows what else. And so, I mean, it's full on. Um, when my son was born, I took like a solid month off. And then I worked a little bit here and there for like another month and a half or two months. Bef- um, and I was waiting for a slot in daycare to open basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he went to daycare at 11, almost, almost 12 weeks. And I will say it was really hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had very bad postpartum anxiety, a little bit of postpartum depression, but mostly postpartum anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, I couldn't sleep. I was so terrified of him dying. And um, that's apparently fairly common. Um, and so my postpartum period, like I could not imagine having tried to work in that period. There's there just no way I was like, I literally wasn't sleeping. By the time my son was 12 weeks, you know, I'd only had a couple of weeks with him where my head was above water, you know, where I was like, okay, in any sense of the word. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say like, I, that is one of the biggest struggles for me is like, I want to do my job. I enjoy my job. I enjoy my work. Um, but I miss my son every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've taken a step in getting support for women. How do you think we can build more of that support, you know, for others? And how can we enable them to continue participating in the field? Um, in our kind of, you know, microcosm, where we already have a huge representation issue, um, building up solutions to remove the boundaries can be really hard when you are in a member of the group who has benefited from those boundaries. And I say that as a white person. We have a huge underrepresentation of African Americans, of Africans, of people from other places in Asia, of indigenous folks, of Pacific Islanders, of North Africans, Middle Easterns. There's like just the Middle Eastern people. There's just a huge um, underrepresentation there. And so it's often difficult to propose solutions when you don't have them in the room. So we have to fi- basically figure out a way to get them engaged and pay them for their time in, in, in developing tailored solutions for the institution or organization that you're looking to change. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give to others in the field? My best advice to like fellow, I guess, more senior people who, you know, may have the ability to hire people or who are, you know, PIs or leads of research groups is um, to like take a step back and provide the forum for those who do not have the same power that you do to voice their concerns and also voice their ideas. Like invest in building up the next generation of people often requires you to be silent yourself and just like be more in a listening mode. I also feel like one of the things I really strive to do in my group is to treat everyone as a person first. Um, And I just, there's really like nothing to be benefited from denying people's humanity at the core of like everything they do on earth. For those who are coming up and and find themselves feeling like they're in less of a power position simply because of their grad student status, like look at the other ways in which you do have power and practice exercising that now. Because when you get in a position of like, you know, real power where you're like, a tenured professor or where you're like directing an organization or whatever, like you'll need the practice and <laughs> to learn the hard lessons of what you've done wrong, wrong in allyship along the way so that you can really um, 
like be more impactful once you get in the position to have a real difference. Thank you for sharing this advice. I hope our community learns to thrive in the ways you're speaking and doing. Okay, one last thing before we go. I read that in addition to being a phenomenal cook, you're also a trained jazz singer. I know this isn't about science or social justice, but I was wondering if you have a favorite song you'd share with us. <laughs> I mean, there's like my one of my one of my songs that like sort of speaks out to me is "The Mother" by Brandy Carlile. You know, I've seen her perform it in concert, and she sort of prefaces it by saying, "You know, motherhood did not come naturally to her. Um, it was a challenging transition for her." And I would say that like I resonated with that in in a different way than she did. Um, for me, I mean, like I had such severe anxiety that I had to grieve. Um, I had to grieve like any sense that I had of being okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because like it literally, it's like your heart sprouts legs and now lives outside of your body and operates independently. And like, you have to worry about it all day. And you're like, this is the most wonderful thing. And I love it so much, but like, I am so worried. And so I will try to sing the beginning of this song. I've been not super well uh, or practice, but we'll see. Welcome to the end of being alone inside your mind. You're tethered to another and you're worried all the time. You always knew the melody, but you never heard it rhyme. She's fair and she is quiet, Lord. She doesn't look like me. She made me love the morning. She is a holiday at sea. The New York streets are as busy as they always used to be. But I am the mother of Evangeline. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> it, yeah. You know, now if there are no existing Brandy Carlisle fans out there, maybe somebody will go look it up because she has the most incredible voice in the world and is an incredible songwriter and social justice activist and just general badass role model. So you're like her. Oh, oh well, <laughs> thank you. I can wish. I can hope. She is a legend in my book. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I really enjoyed this conversation with you because it opened my mind to a lot of possibilities and I see a lot of problems which I can tackle also in my academic journey and I'm really thankful for this opportunity to talk to you. Yeah well I, I enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much. Well that's all for this episode of Down to Earth. For more information about Dr. Alyssa Whitcraft and her research connect with her on LinkedIn or on Twitter at AK Whitcraft. Make sure you also follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And send some love to our sponsors by liking their socials at IEEEWinGRSS on Facebook and Twitter and IEEEWomenInGRSS on LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tumampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Killam Media. And a special thanks to Heather McNairn, Sean Kefauver, and Keely Roth for their support. I'm Stephanie Tumampos, and you've been listening to Down to Earth. <laughs>